Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 5th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. It was way back in 2006, after years of hospital overcrowding, that the then Minister for Health, Mary Harney, said the bottom line is that no one, particularly no older person, should sleep overnight on a trolley in a hospital corridor. The problem had escalated out of control. And remember, this was 2006. Four 195 people were on trolleys. Minister Harney said that this was unacceptable. Of course it's not acceptable, um, but the government and HSC are doing everything possible to improve the situation. That's the Taoiseach Leo Radker speaking yesterday, saying it was unacceptable to have close to a thousand people on trolleys waiting for a hospital bed on Tuesday. Now, rewind almost 20 years back to when there were less than 500 people on trolleys waiting for a hospital bed and and Mary Harney declared this situation to be a national emergency. And the minister promised change. Anything less, she said, is not acceptable to the public. Not acceptable to me and not acceptable to the HSE. I don't think, Sarah, that would be acceptable to anybody. Of course it's not acceptable to me. Um, I, don't th- I don't think there's anyone who would accept that. I don't think there's any doctor or nurse or healthcare assistant in this hospital we're standing outside now or working in any of our hospitals across the country. Um, they would find that acceptable. It's not acceptable and it's, it's, it's never been acceptable. And so the question is, well, what can we do about that? Indeed. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Let's uh, speak now to Junior Minister Damien English of Fine Gael TD for Meath West, who's on the line. Good morning, Minister. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. If an unacceptable situation continues for 20 years, as this one with overcrowding in hospitals obviously has... Does that mean that after 20 years we've come to accept it and that we now believe that we can't expect any better? Uh, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Um, look, I, I think I, I agree with you on one part. It's not acceptable, but I, I don't agree that it can't get better. A um, couple of observations I, want, I just want to add into this. Um, we have seen a lot of change in our health service since those 20 years, no doubt about that. We also went through a period of four or five years where there was no investment in the health service because there was no money in the country. And for the last probably five years now, we've been trying to re- reinvest in our hospitals and our network. We've seen an extra 1,000 beds up back into the system. We've seen four or 5,000 new medical staff, frontline doctors and nurses 
but it's still not enough. Uh, so we have to continue to build extra capacity into our health service. But what's happening these couple of weeks, uh, you know, which is different to what would have happened years ago, you have effectively three viruses putting immense pressure onto the health system that was already under pressure. And that's the flu, that's COVID, that's the, R- the RSV. The models and the predictions didn't even predict the high levels we have this moment in time. So the winter plans that were put in place last October, that were worked on since last May, are not enough to deal with this storage that's come at us now. Uh, and everybody hopes that this is temporary for a couple of weeks and we can continue then rebuilding our health service. But there's going to be immense pressure now, last week, this week, and the next couple of weeks, and every effort has to be made right across the system with everybody working together to try to get us through this time. And we've proven we can do that before with COVID. This is another response that's needed from a, a very weary health service. I'm conscious of that. People are overworked. They're under an awful lot of pressure. It's a high-pressure environment. And um, But this is what's in front of us now with these three viruses. Uh, you know, the COVID numbers in hospital are over 700. Uh, the RSV uh, virus is putting serious pressure uh, on the system and people are very, very sick and have been over the last couple of weeks as well, along with the common flu. So it's a high-pressure time. Um, and I think it's important, Michael, that we, we dig in now and bring in extra capacity from the private system. There's extra money provided now to GP for extra clinics. Mm. Everything has to be done, including working with our community mm. care side as well as our two care side to assist people who are able to leave hospital to leave hospital, to prevent people who don't need to go to hospital. Uh, so every effort has to be made. But then if to continue with the investment we've seen for the last couple of years to put the capacity in place that we need in normal times, never mind these extreme times. And that's what we have to do. And that means recruiting more staff and, and doing that more quickly mm. because it is too slow to recruit staff. But it also means to continue to invest in new beds. Yeah. Thankfully, we've seen a, a thousand beds over the last 18 months. It's proven to be not enough. The capacity reviews that were carried out a couple of years ago would say we need to be in around four or 5,000 extra beds. So we still need to invest, and there are plans to do that. Um, pretty, you know, I wish you could do it literally overnight, but you can't, but you have to continue to do that. But in the short term... Yeah, I but we're talking about a, a 25-year-old problem, uh, and over the... Well, I'm, sorry, Michael, I'm not talking about 25-year-old plans. I'm on the demands that we commit to that. No, a 25-year-old problem. Yeah. Uh, and for 25... It's beyond that. Yeah, it's probably longer than that. Probably longer than that. But, uh, but, but, but for the 25, 30 years, if you like, uh, I've been hearing exactly the same solutions being proposed, but every year we have the same problem, and every year we hear the same solutions being proposed again and again, and it is complete. Groundhog Day, deja vu, whatever way you want to put it. Uh, there's one exception to all of that, which is uh, that we had a financial crash, which you alluded to there, that that was in 2008. In 2010, Fine Gael, in opposition, put forward a private member's motion under your health spokesperson at the time, James Riley, because there was an average of 300 patients on trolleys, not a 1,000, an average of 300 patients on trolleys at the time, and uh, that the doll was being asked to bring about an end to the anguish that continues as a result of that in hospitals uh, across the country. Yeah, and, and, and Michael, two things that have probably changed a lot since that. So, so that knock-on effect from the financial crisis would have gone on until about 2016 or 17, where you didn't have any money. But thankfully, since 2018, there's been sustained investment in our health service. And you've seen a budget. Before Fianna Gael came into government, I think the health budget was less than 11 billion. Now it was 24 billion. 
So you are putting more money into the health service. But what's happened in that time too? You have a massive increase in population. Mm. I think if, I, if, I, if I'm right... If I'm, I but in 2010, Fine Gael had the solution. That's what I'm saying. In 2010, Fine Gael had the money uh, yeah. from the opposition benches. You had the money. You, you were criticising government saying, it's not a question of money. The money is there. Fix it. Uh, Fine Gael campaigned yeah. on the 2011 election uh, on the basis of fixing the, the, the trolley crisis. Yeah. So to go back to the point, Michael, you know, the IMS then arrived in the back of 2010 and we all know what happened then in relation to our budget. We didn't have any money for about five or six years. Um, as first chance we got to reinvest in our health service, we've started to do that. It's not happening quick enough. I agree with you on that. But I also want to point out that we have to bear this in mind. Our population has increased dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years. And I think, that this is, I think if I'm right, an extra 800,000 people are coming through our health services using our health services over the last five or six years. That's a massive increase. Yeah. So all the plans to increase capacity are still not enough. How long has Fine been in government now? Fine Gael in government since 2011, and I'm okay. very clear on this. Mm. The first opportunity we've had, and James Riley would have started that work, continued mm. by Simon Harris, Leo Parks, and Minister Donnelly. We are investing in our health service, which has resulted in extra capacity. Okay. But in times like today, when you've got three viruses coming at you at pace, it's mm. not enough. 12 years, 12 years in government. Yes. Let, me, let me quote your former leader, Enda Kenny, uh, who spoke uh, to the Dáil about uh, the previous administration, saying that uh, we've had 10 years of this hospital overcrowding. Uh, from Fianna Fáil and the Progressive Democrats, we've had overcrowding, the spread of infectious diseases, hundreds of patients on trolleys every month, the figures for which are massaged while operations are cancelled every year, some 29,000 people on waiting lists. They've been failed by the government. Uh, and he said uh, that uh, the politicians of the day uh, were uh, being secreted away from what is happening because they're not exposed to what's happening in the hospitals. They didn't see it uh, firsthand. Uh, at the time, he was inviting the Taoiseach to go down to Beaumont Hospital with him because of a ludicrous situation there at the time, which fails or pales into significance now compared to what we've seen this week. OK, Michael, so can, can I bring you on now where we are, which is about 12 years later, uh, and what we're dealing with today is very different to 12 years ago. We have COVID, which is completely changed our health services. A, a 90-year-old ban waiting 50 hours on a yeah, trolley COVID. in the matter. Uh, this is reported in the Irish Independence Day. 90 years of age on a trolley for 50 hours. Mm. It's shameful, Minister, isn't it? Michael, the, the, sorry, there's nobody trying to defend that. We, we can all see that, and it's horrific. And, and I'm taking phone calls every day of the week this week in Africa. People are under immense pressure working in the health service and those who need access to health service. What I'm saying to you, there's no one trying to deny the situation we are in. We have three viruses that are really impacting our health services. COVID still has the presence of over 700 patients in our hospitals, which means how you run our health services makes it even more complicated. So what I'm trying to say to you is, I, and hands up, I agree with you here, the capacity is not there to deal with three viruses like this. You have to buy in the extra capacity for these couple of weeks, working yep. with our private hospitals, working with our GPs, but also at the same time, invest in new staff, new beds, new capacity, which we are doing. Okay, maybe maybe, quicker. maybe we can and talk a, a little bit about how that can be done, uh, because it really is a serious situation. Uh, worth noting as well that there were 17 people on trolleys in Drogheda yesterday and 16 people on trolleys in Navan, and I'm sure uh, that they had a, a terrible night and a terrible experience. It's not a, a pleasant experience at all, but the, the government is awash with money. Uh, it has five billion more than it expected uh, through increased corporation taxes. Uh, could that not be uh, put to building a, a new hospital? Yeah, so there's two things there, Michael. First of all, it, it is important to say, yes, the finances are there 
to invest for health service. And that's what we've been doing for the last number of years. I mean, you, you've seen a health budget literally double to 24 billion of taxpayer money, which it is this year. That means we have the money and the finances to fix this and address this. The two complications are finding the people you need, as in the medical nurses and doctors, an additional five thousand. This and not making this up. This is factual. Five thousand extra medically qualified people have been employed by the HSE over the last eighteen months. It's not enough. You need that again. And there are recruitment policies in place. There's money set aside to find those people. And that includes extra emergency uh, consultants, hospital emergency consultants as well, to deal with the pressures in A&E and extra top-class nursing uh, staff to back that up. So the money is there for us. Now it's to find the people. Second to that, then, you actually have to have the capacity as in the physical infrastructure. And the plans are there. I'm disappointed that that it's taken so long to build the three elective hospitals that are planned, one for our own region, the Dublin North East, one for Cork, one for Galway, to take the pressure from elective patients out of our acute hospitals. That's important. I've always said, and I'm very clear on this, uh, that we have to uh, look at the North East, in my view, for a, a, a new hospital to give the extra capacity that's needed. The elective hospital will be part of that. Uh, I still believe it won't be enough and you have to continue to build up our acute services. Ideally, in my view, it will go back to the plan that was talked about 20 years ago, one big brand new hospital serving the North East. Mm. There are plans already have been on the way to increase the capacity both at Navan and Drogheda and that's happening and how to manage the services. But the issue is, no matter how many beds you build or how many hospitals you build, is to find the qualified medical professionals you need to run them. And that, that is the issue when it comes to okay. running our A&Es, our own care centres, is to have the capacity of people. And I think yeah. we're making progress there. But secondly, Michael, I think you'll agree with me too, and you touched on this yesterday, there's about 700 people in hospital that are medically discharged yeah. and could be mm. in another setting. Mm. And that means increased investments, which we're seeing with social, and that's, in social care. That was what we were hearing 20 years ago and 10 years and yeah, five and years and two years yeah, ago. And but and here I, we are again, we'll be saying the same thing next year. No, no, no. no. Yeah. So, so, so to be clear, so yes, I agree with you that was said 20 years ago, but we have changed that and transformed that quite a lot now. And there, are, there are made, there's been major investment in our community care, in our primary care, social care. And, it, and it's just at times of high pressure, mm. You know, but normally, apart from these couple of weeks, that system is working quite well. People are generally discharged and find a place to go to quite quickly. But we have to be honest with ourselves. There's extreme pressure for these couple of weeks, okay. uh, and you need to deal with that. So that means putting in more capacity. But I do think that there is an, an opportunity there to, to, to push on with our community services so people can leave even quicker. And I think that's where the continued investment to slaunter care, every mm. effort, and in fairness to this, there's been cross-party support for the slaunter care plan. And that is about investing in your primary care, your okay. care, to back up your acute service. All right, minute, minute, Mr. Can, can I move on uh, to this uh, 5 billion euro uh, windfall that the government has uh, just realised? It's an incredible amount of money. Uh, there's no guarantee that uh, that will be there in uh, the short term, let alone the long term in, in terms of planning uh, for uh, the uh, fiscal uh, management of uh, the country. But having said that, um, does that mean that it should be put away for a rainy day or is this rainy day here now and it could be spent on something like health or on housing or something like that? Uh, it's a, a lot of money. Uh, um, what do you think should be yeah. done with it? Yeah, so, so a couple of things there. It's, it's, it's not a total surprise. We've, we've watched this coming over the last couple of months. Uh, and we knew, even when we were preparing the budget last year, that there was there was a, the chance that uh, corporation tax could be a lot higher than what we predicted. But we couldn't, you couldn't budget for that because you weren't guaranteed that. A budget, you're trying to with a budget to use money that you're pretty much sure you'll have. 
So it is a surplus that we didn't plan to spend. Um, and But we have used some of it already last year uh, to try to support families and businesses through a very difficult time with costs because of Ukraine. And more of that money will be used this year to do the same as well. The rainy day fund, the decision was made to put two billion aside into that, to have that for the future. There's also in the budget for 2023 about three billion of, of un, mm. of uncommitted expenditure, money set aside to deal with issues like what you're having today, which is because of COVID and the flu and the RSV, that's there. But there's also extra money to deal with the situation in Ukraine as well. But this so impacts on the work that you do, don't, <coughs> excuse me, doesn't it, as the Minister for uh, Employment, uh, because people are reluctant, apparently, to establish businesses here because of problems like housing and health. So, so that's untrue, Michael, because we can see the number of businesses and people employed in this country has been growing rapidly over the last couple of years. And, and my work in the department, along with the Tower City of Africa for the last two and a half years, we, you know, our target was to have two and a half million people at work by next year, this time next year. We've, we're, we've gone ahead of that target already. We're a year ahead of our plan. So jobs are being created. Businesses are setting up here. But we're looking ahead to plan for the next seven or eight years to make sure that we don't take today's jobs for granted, that we're investing in the infrastructure, including housing, and, and supporting businesses to make sure you have jobs in the future as well, to future-proof this country. Mm. And there is there are issues there. Businesses will say to us, looking ahead, they need to know that government have plans to fix these issues, mm. that have plans to fix our health capacity, our water, our housing, our, our social infrastructure. And we do have plans, mm. and the money is there to do that. Well, what next, though? Because, I, I mean, you say okay. we can't get the doctors and the nurses, but we also can't get the chefs or the engineers... Yeah, so, so, so there's two things there. The, the, one is a positive, that, that we're practically at full employment in the country. Uh, but number two, then, we, ha- we have a lot, an awful lot of vacancies. And the majority of businesses that I sit down today with and talk with, they tell me their biggest issue uh, after they deal with their cost based on relation to energy is staff and talent. And we've invested quite a lot to work with the business communities through the local enterprise offices, through our education and training boards, loud media education and training boards, through our colleges or universities, to link in with businesses to develop the skills they need to fill these jobs. As well as that, we have to retrain ex- people who are in our existing jobs, but we also uh, have people coming in from abroad to fill these jobs as well. So we have a lot of vacancies. Mm. We, we, a big priority of mine in, 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 the, in, the, in my current ministerial role over the next two years is to work on the skills agenda to put in place the new courses the new apprenticeships, the new traineeship programs uh, the, the springboard courses that are, that are quick conversion courses to give people the skills mm. they need to fill these vacant jobs because it's a good position to be in but businesses need more people to work mm. uh, and we've got a lot of students coming through education system even likewise Simon Harris this week is mm. working on new college places for nurses, for doctors to fill those vacancies that we need And but it also means in short term having to bring people in from abroad to fill these vacancies too but you constantly have to be investing in skills and training it's a good place to be providing you have the capacity to fix it and I do believe our education system has been reformed enough over the last seven or eight years to respond to these challenges and to deliver the courses we need to fill these gaps and it's something that I'm looking forward to working on my role for the next couple of years but I I want to be very clear and we published a white paper on Enterprise just before Christmas there we know that you can't take uh, high employment for granted you have to constantly invest with the business community to support local Irish companies in Loud, in Mead, in Navin, in Trim, and Enfield to invest and to grow and expand, to invest in R&D, to invest in innovation, to invest in skills. That's constant work we have to do. Uh, and, and, and I'm glad by doing that, we are in a position that we have a five billion surplus when it comes to corporation tax because yeah. it's based on people who are working very hard. Yeah, uh, should it go into a rainy day fund or should we uh, think, uh, look at the sky, it's lashing and spend it now? 
So the, 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 to be clear on that, Michael, the, the, the rain day fund is money set aside that we, that we don't believe we need to spend this year. We have separate to the rainy day fund, there are the three billion in the contingency fund mm. to fund emergencies like what's happening in our health service now and Ukraine. The issue in terms of investing in our health service, the, the budget for health this year is over twenty four billion. They'll have a difficulty in spending that. The mm. issue is to spend it as quick as you possibly can in a proper effective way. And that means finding the extra staff you need. So yeah. to be, I want to be honest here, the money is set aside for the extra staff okay. that are needed. So, finding the people is the issue. There's a lot of staff uh, available for every sector, not just for health, but for the chefs and the engineers, uh, the doctors and the accountants, uh, and uh, we've uh, about 70,000 new neighbours who've come to this country from Ukraine. Uh, as Minister for Employment, would you look on the Ukrainian refugees as a talent pool that should be tapped into, that the qualifications that they already have in their home country should be recognised here somehow. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And from day one, we responded immediately to be able to allow uh, anyone coming from Ukraine to be able to work here in this country from straight from day one. And that's what's happening. They come through uh, our services after they land in Ireland and they get their PPS number and they're, they're in a position to work. I understand that's when I checked the figures. I think about 11,000 people that's come from Ukraine mm-hmm. are now working uh, in, our, in, in different jobs right throughout the country. Um, there's about 13 or 14,000 of them in school, so there's quite a high number not in a position to work. But as people settle in, they get their more permanent housing, yeah. they are in a position to work. But many of them, their, 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 their qualifications aren't recognised yeah. in many cases. So, so that's it, yeah. So I, I raise this my, at yeah. the European level. I work kind of once a month with European ministers looking at the skills agenda. And the issue we've asked the Commission to deal with is the recognition of skills of those from Ukraine and other countries as well around Europe, that we find a quicker way to recognise their skills, to be able to place them in the jobs that they're qualified for and not to have them underemployed. And that is change that's happening and there's been a, a lot of work done to our education systems across the, the country to make that happen. And I think you'll see that happening a lot quicker now this year, which thankfully, which will enable people coming from Ukraine in difficult times and to slot into their profession and that they will be of assistance to this country. And likewise, we have changed the permit system. I'm in charge of the permit system in our country as well. Last year, we dealt with over 40,000 permits, bringing in people with the qualifications we need from other countries uh, to come in to work here. Just literally the week before Christmas, we uh, allowed uh, a new uh, category of people to come in to work in home care because there's an awful lot of pressure uh, to provide care in the home. The HSE can't find enough staff that as well. The companies and planning people can't find enough staff. So we've sanctioned additional thousand people with permits to come in from abroad to work full-time jobs here uh, providing care in the home. Likewise we made the similar change for nursing homes two years ago and over two and a half thousand people came here to work in a nursing home. So when you're short of people to work in, in this country it's important in a careful managed way well respected and, and, and properly paid people can come in from abroad with the right qualifications as well and that's part of the response to the health service. Last year I think about 5,000 permits that we granted were in relation to the health service. That's doctors, that's nurses, mm-hmm. other medical professions as well. And that's part of our response. So, again, going back to confirm, the money is there is to find the people we need and to find it quicker and to put the systems in place to be able to maximise and their, their benefits as well. OK, Minister, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Fine Gael TD for Mead West. Uh, Damien English, who is the Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Just before four o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, Gardaí knocked on a door on the Echo Road in Dundalk. They went in, searched the house and discovered 50 kilos of cannabis herb. A man in his 20s is currently being questioned at Dundalk Garda Station about the seizure. Let's speak uh, to former detective inspector and senior investigating officer uh, Pat Murray, who's on the line. Uh, and uh, this is your old stomping ground, of course. Pat Marion, you've written about many of the very uh, serious crimes that you investigated here in your book, The Making of a, a Detective Agarda's Story of Investigating Some of Ireland's Most Notorious Crimes. Uh, what do you make of this seizure on Tuesday? Uh, 50 kilos of cannabis. Uh, the Garda you're saying is probably worth about a million euro. That sounds like a, an awful lot of weed. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's 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 uh, street value of one million. So like the criminal fraternity that have been involved in putting all that together and getting it wouldn't have maybe wouldn't have paid anything near that. They may have been paying something in the region of two hundred thousand. They invested to get the drugs uh, together. You know, mm. but still, it's an impact on the criminal fraternity that was involved in that, and it certainly shows that the Gardaí are working uh, and are playing their part in the, in the fight against dr- uh, drugs uh, in in not just the Loud Division but uh, nationwide because uh, this this operation uh, was put down under Operation Tara, which is a, a national anti strategy uh, to disrupt, dismantle, and and prosecute those involved in drugs. How much? Uh, how, much dis- how much disruption do you think a, a seizure like that will uh, cause? I mean, it seems like a, a, yeah, well, an look, awful uh, lot of drugs, but uh, in the overall of scheme of things, if, if if you have mm. a number of criminal uh, gangs who have invested in this, they like may have put twenty, thirty thousand into it or whatever, and to these groups, that might not be a big loss. But it still does uh, disrupt them, like, you know. Mm. Uh, but will will they still have uh, drugs to sell? Oh, they're for sale, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and the Gardaí obviously got it right. Their intelligence was right. Yeah. Their um, uh, strategy was right to search that house at, uh, on Tuesday, you know, to get to maximise the amount of drugs that was there. So, uh, well done to the guards, yeah. yes. Oh, uh, yeah. Must, yeah. It must, must be. It shows that they are... Um, you know, uh, very active in, in, in playing their part in, in, in the fight against drugs. And I just see that uh, it was affiliated to, to the cross-border joint action force, which um, would involve um, the PSNI and that, you know. So it shows that there is cooperation, and that's a good thing. Mm, of course, uh, yeah. But, but, but you have to look at the overall, let's say, the consequences of that seizure is that it, it does... Uh, you know, would you say they, they, you have to look at the effects of drugs on society? Like you know, mm. they, I take it um, these drugs wouldn't have been imported; that they would have been cultivated probably in what we call a, a grow house these days. Oh, possibly yes, yeah. possibly, mm. <clears throat> possibly. So that is where's that grow house, and is it local or is it somewhere else? Like you know, but we've had over the years numbers of of seizures of grow houses and that you know. Mm. But the guards in Loud have always been at the forefront of drug seizures. October 2019, they recovered 3.2 million mm. of drugs. In May 2020, 1.1 million. Yeah. And so on. Like So it's it's an ongoing battle. <laughs> but the, the uh, drugs, uh, drug use is a permanent feature now of the Irish culture and society. Yeah. And maybe it's a time now to have a look at <clears throat> is there alternatives to uh, dealing with uh, 
people taking taking drugs, you know. De- decriminalizing or legalizing because I'm sure there's a lot of I'm sure there's a lot of people in business this morning listening to you saying uh, maybe they invested 200,000 and were able to sell their product if you like for a million. That's a, a profit of 800,000. Yes, yes, and that's that's what you have to realize that the profits out of drugs are huge and should we look at the Kinahan uh, carry on like over the last number of years and the amount of money you know, that's mm. the figures that have been thrown up and this, that and the other, like, you know, and, and, and you know, that, that's the reality of the drug trade. Mm. And, like, we have to look at, what, like, the, the effects of the drug trade, like, it overburdens the, the justice system, it, uh, it strains the health service, uh, it, uh, you know, people who who may be taking drugs take days off to, to recover mm. or whatever, so productivity is affected. And above all, and it's a really, uh, it leads to depression. It leads to people developing epilepsy. Uh, and there's no doubt that people, because of their depression, uh, commit suicide. And a lot of them end up, end up in jail. Mm. So what I'm saying is that, you know, there's huge fallout from drug taking. Sure. You could probably say the same in terms of the impacts on health about alcohol. And I think some people would say uh, alcohol would be more serious. Uh, if this was the a, 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 a cash of alcohol uh, worth a million euro, uh, mm. it would have been worth what, about maybe five, six, seven hundred thousand euro uh, to the exchequer. Yeah, well, that's it. But is, is it not a case now that uh, maybe the government should be looking at let's let's uh, decriminalise and let's say uh, instead of now I'm only throwing this out here, uh, you know, let, let, let the government uh, introduce a, a policy of, uh, uh, you know, uh, selling drugs themselves uh, regulated you know, so they'd have uh, people, the government would make their revenue out of the sale of, of, of um, you know. Mm. Maybe invested in the police force. Would it reduce uh, the workload on Angarda Shiakana uh, if drugs were to be legalised or would these gangs find something else to be selling on the back market? Well, they may well do that, but it would certainly, uh, what... Uh, we used to call a Section 3 offence. You stop a fellow in the street and he has a bit of cannabis on him. Like, you know, he's committing an offence. He may end up before the courts and that, like, you know. And, you know, so, like, it's taking up the guards' time, the courts' time. And what, at the end of the day, he might get a fine. He might just be told off or whatever. So there's no really uh, benefit in the end of the day. So decriminalising, let's say, cannabis or maybe cocaine to a certain degree uh, would uh, free up a lot of time, court time and guardist time. Mm. But, like, I think... It's it's unofficially decriminalised at the moment, is it not? Uh, I mean... Well, it is, yeah. But Guardy have the the discretion not to uh, uh, charge Uh, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But look at it. Put it this way. At the end of the day, uh, you know... a positive strategy should be taken on, on the drug culture here. Mm. Is it the health service uh, that should be looking after all of this, or is it the the, the justice system and the guards? Mm. You know, yeah, and uh, and the, and the people, not not just the people. Not just the people who fall victim to drugs and all that, the petrol bombs, the guns, the knives, the yeah, beatings. All you, 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 yeah, absolutely. The fallout mm. and, the, mm. and the carry on within, let's say, criminal gangs and when they face off against each other, it leads to murder like and, and serious injury and that. like. So there's a huge fallout from drug taking and that. And 
we know that children as young as 12 are taking drugs now like you know it's not uncommon to know that like so uh, I think it's in my own opinion it's just um, the time that the, the country got to, to grips with the, the drug culture and saying like what can we do like you know because just in respect to the, 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 the grasp the nettle in, in, in Portugal in respect of it and decriminalised and that and they discovered after a couple of years that their suicide rate dropped dramatically I think it dropped by 85% or something like that okay. you know what I mean and most so interesting yeah, so it's huge, huge. So, like, I know that in Canada they had a, a, a sort of a relaxed policy in respect of the drugs, but then you had a lot of people congregating and taking over streets, let's say, mm. in Vancouver, let's say, where there's huge homelessness and, you know, yeah. uh, drug taking. So, look, there's, there's horrors and yeah. against, but I, but I think the answers are out there to sort of maybe facilitate a... a, a um, a strategy for Ireland moving mm. forward. But and maybe all of that um, will feed into the Citizens' Assembly, which I think may be established this year. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no but look at that. And the bottom line is that, yes, well done, the guards. Mm. They've done a fantastic job and they're continuing to do a fantastic job. And when you see uh, a strategy like uh, the mm. National Anti-Drug Strategy under Operation Tara, it shows that the they have a focus and they have a strategy moving forward mm. and it's paying off because well, they are getting catches not just in Loud but all around the country. A man in his 20s under arrest and a, a yeah, million yeah. euro worth of cannabis has been seized. Pat, we leave it there for the moment. Many thanks though yeah. as always for joining us okay. on the programme. Thank you indeed. Okay, Pat thank, Barney, you. thank you. Former detective inspector and senior investigating officer and author of The Making of a Detective, a guard story of investigating some of Ireland's most notorious crimes. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. So many people calling us about uh, the overcrowding in hospitals uh, today. Maureen says she wants to know whatever happened to the site in Navan that was earmarked for the new regional hospital that was planned over 10 years ago. Was it sold on to developers or what happened to it? Well, the plans were scrapped, I suppose, Maureen. And Thomas uh, says if the Nirvana utopia state that Damien English was describing really existed, then we'd have no problems whatsoever in health services. Maybe it's time for government ministers to come back into the real world. Uh, we'd uh, WhatsApp message from Carmel Doyle uh, beg your pardon, Carmel MacDonald saying please ask Damien English to prioritise and demand uh, the policy of building up capacity including the delivery of a regional hospital in Mead. That's the one that was recommended in a report that was commissioned by the government in 2008 that cost a small fortune. She also says there's extreme pressure all year round not just for these couple of weeks. The people working in the service need the absolute commitment to deliver the capacity to give them the courage to endure. Uh, another text or WhatsApp message uh, from Sean who says the government can't even tell us how many millions it's going to cost to finish the children's hospital. Is that good management? We'd uh, somebody else in touch with us uh, saying uh, that uh, they weren't buying what Damien English was saying, trying to defend the poor preferences of his government, talking about a new hospital when one of the ones on uh, um, there's a typo in there uh, but they're talking about the downgrading of the Navin Hospital Uh, it's the same old waffle Uh, Paddy Duffy says Finnegale's rainy day fund is going to be for a giveaway budget for Finnegale supporters in the next election Ian says Damien is talking the finest of 
dot, dot, dot. Thank you uh, for holding back on uh, your words. He says, they can't get medical staff and yet he reckons three new hospitals will ease the waiting lists, etc. Where will the staff come from in these new hospitals? How many Irish nurses, medical staff are working in the four corners of the world because of the crap that goes on in this country? Thank you as well. Somebody else saying uh, Damien English was talking rubbish. Uh, That's a, a turn of phrase that a few people have used, blaming pandemics for the crisis, all the extra people that the government allowed into this small country. And he talks of recruiting more nurses. Our new nurses can't wait to exit the country due to the high unaffordable rents and high taxation. Wake up and smell the roses, Damien says our caller. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're a medical card holder and you've had uh, problems with your teeth recently, you'll probably know that uh, it's a very complicated system at the moment for medical card holders who are looking for dental care. And to raise um, the lack of dental care for medical card patients, I mean, I've raised this so often with your government that it's deeply frustrating for me. I can only imagine how bad it is for patients affected. For almost two years now, patients with medical cards can't access dental care. That includes patients who are seriously ill with diabetes, even cancer. And just to give an example, Drogheda, the largest town in Ireland, hasn't one single dentist, not one dentist, treating uh, patients with medical cards, and that's replicated across the state. And no matter how often you say you're working to resolve it, there seems to be absolutely no urgency about it. The Dental Association said recently that the last time they've met with yourself, Minister, was on a Zoom meeting in 2021. Now, at what stage do people have to wait? On top of that, there are tens and tens of thousands of school children who haven't even got their first routine checkup. Minister I mean, it's shameful. When is it Thank going you. to be resolved? Do you have Minister a date so that people you. can have access to proper dental health care? That's Sinn Féin TD for Loud, the Melbourne Monster, speaking in uh, the doll before the Christmas break. Now, we dug that clip out uh, this morning because of a, a text uh, that we received yesterday. Uh, and thanks for your text, Grace, and thanks for coming on to the programme with us uh, today to tell us your story. Uh, you're a medical card holder yourself and you've had more than one problem. Yes, uh, hi, Michael. Hi. Um, yeah, I sent you in a text yesterday and I actually thought about sending it in before Christmas because I had an incident myself. But prior to my incident, so approximately three months ago, my son had a dental emergency um, and he is in Drahara. He's living in Drahara. He couldn't get a dentist that would take his medical card Um he has, uh, you know, illnesses for life. Mm. Um, he couldn't get a dentist, uh, so he was advised to go to a doctor. He couldn't get a doctor's appointment, so he then went to the doctor on call, which was a late appointment at night, I'm not sure, mm. but he went to that. The doctor said that she had never seen anything like uh, the condition of what... Now, he has beautiful teeth, Michael. He, he got a virus through his gums. Right. Um and it wasn't just a normal gum disease thing. It, it was horrific. Uh, an abscess. She said, an abs- no, it wasn't, no, it was right through all his, his top gums. Oh, right. Okay. So um, she said, look, you, you need to get to a dentist urgently um, within 24 hours. She said, if you can't get a dentist, you have to go to A&D. So we were on the phone for hours. Um, we did get a, a dentist. He got a dental appointment at six o'clock in the morning in Dublin, which we had to pay for. 
Um, but the, the advice was any. Um, so then what happened to me, I thought that was an isolated mm. thing, a fluke. So uh, two weeks before Christmas, um, I had a dental problem. Now, being vigilant, because I heard of what was happening with the medical cards patients, I knew that my dentist had stopped taking them. And I registered with a dentist in my area, which is Dundalk. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if you know, filled in the forms, registered as a new patient, did mm. all of that, probably around July. Right. So I had this issue then in December. But you, you, you had a, a dentist previous to that that you used to go to, but they stopped taking medical card patients. They is stopped that right? taking yeah. medical okay. cards, yeah. Okay, so... Um, so I did go in uh, to this dentist. Now, I was in agony. I hadn't slept for several nights. And I went in. They wanted a €40 Euro deposit to make an appointment. So I did do that. And when I handed the girl uh, the money, well, it was on the counter, um, she said, we'll see you at the end of January, start of February. And I said, no, no, no. I said, it's an emergency. I said, I, I, it's an emer- like my whole face is swollen and everything. I said, it's an emergency. She said, but you're a new client. And I said, but it's, 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 something has to be done with it. She said, well, what they recommend uh, was to go to my GP. Right. And if I couldn't get a dental, or if I couldn't get an appointment with the GP, go to A&D. Right. Now, what I did do was go to my own dentist, uh, my original dentist, who was lovely. But to go to your dentist now, it's €35 Euro for an appointment. And it's 95 for an extraction or a filling. I'm on social welfare, Michael. Mm. So I would need about six weeks notice to have an emergency. Which should be covered by your medical card. Yes, yeah. Mm. Right. Uh, Did you get uh, your uh, problem sorted? I did, yes. And I I paid for it. Now, I did try um, to contact If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com.
BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, I don't know. Like, I don't deal with uh, community welfare officer or any of that thing, but I did try to do that because I knew years ago you could do something. So I did inquire about claiming the money back um, and the rigmarole uh, was just dreadful. Mm. Um, they, I contacted the on the, the the local office but they put you through to the main office. I was 40 minutes waiting. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I just wanted to see that, you know, I was trying everything to, to work within the system. Mm. Um. So I was put on then to a treatment section, which was the wrong section. Um, and they said, uh, no, you're on to the wrong section. Then I went on to the health board. And they said, no, take it up with your dentist. Um, actually, his exact quote was, and his name was Miguel, you need to take this up with your dentist. End of story. Mm. I did inquire about special needs payment that the government keeps talking about. And it doesn't apply. Oh. Okay. Uh, now, in addition to that, you know, I know this, we're talking mm. about the dental issues. Mm. My son got sick the week before Christmas and he had to go to do- the doctor on call. Um, and I'm not complaining, Michael, about dentists, doctors on call, uh, nurses, doctors, anything. Yeah. Um, but my son got sick the week before Christmas and I said, I have to get to a doctor. He rang the doctor on call, who are lovely, um, at between 11 and 12 in the afternoon, one day, I'm not sure what day it was. Mm-hmm. And he got an appointment for the following morning at 5 a.m. So he stayed up to make sure that, that he was going to the doctor. And he was very, very sick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he was told that if he was got worse in the meantime, now they couldn't do anything about it. Mm. But if he got worse in the meantime... He was to go to A&E. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, the only way I would go to A&E is if I was unconscious. Mm. And now we're being told, don't go to A&E. Um, God, I, I don't know. You've left but me yeah, very confused with a, a million and one questions. Just, just just, go back to the original story about your son, Indrada, who needed to see a dentist, who ended up in Dublin. Uh, why did he end up paying a dentist in Dublin uh, I heard Imelda Munster talking there a few minutes ago saying that there isn't a dentist in Drogheda that will take a medical card patient. But if your son was paying uh, to be seen, why couldn't he get to see somebody in Drogheda? Yeah, but this all happened overnight, Michael. Like right. when he got to see the doctor on call, it was a late appointment. Yeah. She said that he had to be seen within 24 hours. We got lucky and we got an appointment early in the morning in Dublin. So... This was happening through the night. We were leaving messages mm. looking for emergency dentists. And it was uh, Balbriggan or Dublin uh, 
that we got to actually speak to somebody and it was Dublin right. who went to. And why would you go to Doctor on Call? Uh, the whole thing just seems farcical. Uh, I mean, the Doctor on Call was overrun over Christmas, um, but you're being told to go to Doctor on Call or, or go to the hospital, is it? That's, that's it. And you see, I thought it was a one-off thing with yeah. my son. But when it happened to me before Christmas, now I would be lucky because... My GP is, he does a walk-in mm. morning. He's very efficient. He wouldn't extract a tooth, though, would he? I mean, a, a no, doctor a doctor isn't a dentist and a dentist isn't a, a doctor. I wouldn't like a, a dentist doing open heart surgery on me. Do you know what I mean? I know, but they're yeah. sending you there in case you need antibiotics. Right, okay. Um, okay. The extraction, mm. I, I think, would have to happen in A&E. I don't know if they can do that. But, well, for two of us, from living in two different towns, mm to both be chose by a dentist to go to a doctor, and if we can't get one, well, I wasn't told to go to A&E, I was told mm. to go to a doctor. But, um, he, oh yeah, well, I wa- yeah, if you can't get a doctor, go to A&E. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, there was a thousand people on trolleys on Tuesday. <laughs> I know, I know, I know this. Yeah. And, you know, I was some listening. of them, so, some of them. I mean, there's people very worried about people in hospitals uh, in case they had a stroke, and you know that uh, time is of the essence uh, because people can end up with all sorts of uh, problems after a stroke if they're not treated quickly or a heart attack, uh, and they're worried that people will die in those situations and all sorts of problems. But at the same time, uh, and I imagine you know better than anyone, Grace, if uh, you've got a bad tooth and it needs to be taken out, uh, you'd nearly kill somebody to get it out. Oh, absolutely. Like When I went in to, to the dentist um, that would accept the medical cards, I, I wasn't doing that. I didn't want to be there. Yeah. But um, I, I had tears in my eyes. Like I couldn't believe that she said, you're a new client. Hmm. And how, how, how long were you left like that, in that level of pain that you had tears in your eyes? Oh, no, well, I had gone through three nights of it, and mm. I had taken enough. I was taking painkillers, and I was doing everything. Mm. Um, and then I just walked in, like, with the deposit, because you needed a deposit. I had rang them, so you needed a deposit. So I had to wait until I physically had the deposit, and I went in that day. With the deposits mm. to, to get an appointment. So, um, on one hand, you've free dental card because, or dental care because you have a medical medical card. Uh, on yeah. the other, on the other hand, <laughs> you can't get a dentist to see you. And as well as that, I have underlying issues, as does my son. But they're saying go to A and E, which mm. is overcrowded. My God, it really is. Farcical, or seems farcical, or bizarre, or whatever. Uh, we were listening to Imelda Munster talking about it in the doll before the Christmas, and she was talking to Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health. Uh, we'll just hear what the Minister had to say uh, to Imelda Munster uh, now, Grace, and uh, see what you make of uh, his response. We are aware of this, and as you'll be aware, we allocated a lot of money this year into the scheme. We've increased uh, the fees very significantly this year. The reality is that the dentists themselves uh, are withdrawing from the scheme. Uh, We can only presume that that's because they make more money from private practice than they make from treating the public patients. Uh, But on top of that, uh, we are investing further into the scheme. We've also, as you'll be aware in the budget, uh, I've allocated funding for a a national uh, service now for early years, uh, oral health dental intervention for children, which which, uh, will make a big difference. But it's not to detract from the very real 
uh, 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 problems that patients are having with medical cards trying to access. We are aware of it. We are uh, um, allocating more and more money into it at the moment. Uh, the dentists are simply making, a lot of them are simply making more money from private practice than from, um, you, from, from the treating the public patients. No, no, we'll continue on. to engage. Thanks. All right, uh, that's Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health. Uh, what do you make of that, Grace? I just think it's funny. Not in a good way. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's funny because, you know, he's saying that they're investing money. And that's what they're saying. That's what Damien English was saying this morning. They're investing money. But where? Like, why can they not sit down with the dentist? Because it's costing their money if the dentists are sending us A and E, like and blocking up doctor on call, like it's 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 just funny, mm. not in a good way. Mm. Uh, well, I wonder uh, if the minister is uh, aware of it, or when he says he's aware of it, uh, if he means that he's aware that you had to pay for a service that you're entitled to receive without charge uh, and probably should be reimbursed for <laughs> I don't know I don't know either but see I think what's happening Michael is I didn't want my name mentioned you know that yourself Yeah. <clears throat> then I watched that little girl last night uh, Angel Wall mm. and I said oh my god and I have listened to two people recently yeah. um, that struck a chord with me and I think yeah. as Irish people I was on the Tonight Show on Virginia. Oh, I was watching the Tonight Show yeah, last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, I, I would have heard two people on your show recently, yeah, yeah. Um, local people. Um, and I just think that, you know, we don't like to complain. If I would not like my dentist, who's absolutely brilliant, my original dentist, or, or the nurses, or the doctor, or the administration staff, or anyone to think that I'm... I don't even hold Stephen... Uh, uh, sorry the Minister of Health, I don't hold him responsible either. I just hold the government, the whole thing. It's the people at the top. Do you know what I mean? I think we don't like to say... I I mean, I'm as confused as I was when we started the conversation. Uh, I mean, I understand uh, what you've been through or uh, what you've been through, but I don't understand why you've been through it. Well, that's it. And I, like, because I knew I, I was coming on when I was contacted yesterday, I did spend an hour and a half on the phone going through, you know, trying to contact the, the local info centre, then being put on to treatment, then being put on to the health board, and then told to take it up with my dentist. Quote, you need to take it up with your dentist. From Miguel in the health board. Okay. So, um, I don't know. And, you know, they are talking about special needs assistance and all of this, and when anything comes up. But um, I only probably did that, Michael, because I was coming on the show. Mm, mm. Um, But it's not there. Okay, Grace, uh, you've made a a very strong point uh, on uh, the show with us uh, this morning. Thanks again for your text message. Thanks for coming on and thanks for making that uh, point as strongly as you did on uh, the programme. We're going to talk to Melda Munster in a few minutes uh, about it, but thank you, as I say, for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you too, Michael. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Melda uh, Munster, Sinn Féin TD for Loud Andy Smead is on the line and uh, a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. We heard you uh, a short while ago raise this issue in the Dáil with Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if you were able to make any sense of what Grace has gone through. 
I, oh, I can indeed. And her story, her experience, uh, both herself and her son, is, um, I'd say, shamefully a prime example of what's happening to so many patients with medical cards who can't access dental care. And it's been going on almost two years now. And I've raised it multiple times, multiple times, not just with the Minister for Health. I've raised it with the Taoiseach, I've raised it with the Taunashta. And it seems to me that they're not giving it priority whatsoever and they're allowing this to to go on and go on, knowing full well that that there's thousands upon thousands of patients with medical cards who can't access can't get access to, to dental care. Mm. The minister uh, told you he was aware of the problem. Ah, uh, look, sometimes I really have to bite my tongue sometimes. I mean, you can get so angry and frustrated. You can imagine what it's like for patients, but just the 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 attitude and the lack of priority, even though you stand up time and time again and explain how it's affecting people's lives. And they, I mean, the last Zoom meeting Stephen Donnelly had with the Irish Dental Association was nearly two years ago. And it seems to me that the HSE dictate to the minister when it should be the opposite way around. Now, both the Taunashta, the Taoiseach and the minister are aware of it for that full length of time. And none of them collectively have put any priority on it. They haven't sat down. The Minister for Health, for example, hasn't sat down with the Irish Dental Association and the HSE round the table. And the Dental Association, the dentists are totally frustrated with the scheme since the cutbacks in um, since 2010. You know, they're, they're, they're saying that it's emergency patch-up jobs now are all that's available really for patients on medical cards, that there's no comprehensive care and that that's damaging to long-term health. You know, and they're saying that they, the, the treatment now that they, they have been giving since the cutbacks is kind of lead, lead, leaning more towards extractions and provision of dentures rather than conserving teeth. Mm. They're not even allowed under the, the with the cutbacks under this the scheme. They're not even allowed to do a scale and polish. Yeah, but you know, and patients can't do it because they can't afford it. And that's that, and the, that's that old theory of prevention is better than cure. But it, yeah. when you need the cure, which is uh, to extract a, a tooth. Uh, or some more serious work like that and there's no avoiding it. It's a, an emergency. An emergency uh, such as uh, the one Grace found herself in, an emergency such as Grace's son found himself in yeah. uh, and you have to pay. Uh, can you be reimbursed? Not that I'm aware of. You can't because they'll just say, no, you, you chose to go privately. But there's no choice in that. No, I know that. I mean, you know that. What do you do? Everybody get a bottle of whiskey? Half a brain knows that. Like, yeah. yeah. A bottle of whiskey and a pair of pliers yeah. or, yeah. or whatever. But, tie, tie your yeah. tooth to the door and get someone to slam it. Or like a, an old Western movie or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, and that's what, that's what they've allowed to carry on for almost two years. That's what they're... They're, they know, they're fully aware of it. Yeah. And either the HSE is dictating or the minister's not strong enough. But, to stand up to them. There's, le- to there's legislation, is there not, that governs uh, the medical card? Yes, yeah. there is. Uh, and that scheme, because of the cutbacks, what happened was, I think it was the, the end of December 2009, the cutbacks were, were brought in. There was no discussion with the, 
the dental association at the time. They were just brought in and that was that. And dentists have been flagging it for years yeah. that the lack of preventative care and the frustration they felt and that they, they have to explain to patients um, yeah, and that, and that's one and that's that, that's one treatment. thing that, that that's their contract, if you like, with the state yeah. uh, and the legislation uh, would cover the contract if they choose to enter into it. Uh, if they don't choose to enter into it, I'm sure the legislation must cover what the patient, the medical card holder, is entitled to because you're given a, a medical card under the terms of the legislation, are you not? Which entitles you to free GP care to dental care mm. uh, and so on so if you're not getting what you're entitled to uh, what does that mean legally well when you i don't know what it means legally but when you raise it with the the, the government they don't seem to give a damn they literally don't i mean you just you often think to yourself and you're raising a serious issue with the minister or taoiseach or tarnishty you say to yourself if i was in that position your first thing you do was insist that they all come to a meeting with myself the minute, as minister, you know, at that meeting, chairing that meeting and then laying out what the problems are, laying out how best as a service, a public health service, we can provide to a patient, whether it's dental or whatever else, and how to put what's gone wrong right. But they don't seem to do that. They literally just fob people off all the time. So there's school children, there's thousands upon thousands of school children who haven't even got their, their first checkup, dental checkup, all around the country. Thousands upon thousands mm. of them that we would have got, you know, in, in, in normal time, like when, when you're at school, they're, they're all just left. And again, it's about preventative care, the lack of early diagnosis and treatment, um, you know, for diseases or and in children or vulnerable adults. Mm. And that's that, so like a diagnosis so, so, and early intervention. So when the minister says to you uh, in the National Parliament uh, that he's aware of the problem mm. uh, and that the reason for the problem is that the dentists can make more money privately than they can through the medical card scheme and uh, taking in medical mm. card patients, uh, he's explaining to you what the problem is. Uh, is the minister's job not to provide a solution? Of course it is. Of course it is. And I mean, that's the first time. And I just, when I heard him say that, I just, I just thought you're scraping the bottle of the barrel now. You've either no comprehension whatsoever or you're quite happy to go along with what the HSE are saying that that's just good enough. What we have there um, that's not preventative treatment is good enough for patients on medical cards. Mm. The minister's job is to provide. The minister's job is to provide a health service uh, to oversee the provision of health services, Uh, and um, if there's obstacles, that's what the minister is in place for, is it not? Well, that's what you and I would think. As I said to you, I often sit there and say, you know, if I was there, that's exactly what I would do. Why are they not doing it? It's just it's. It's unbelievable what's going on. And dental is just one aspect. You know, we heard you talking earlier about the, the hospital and the trolley crisis and the chaos in a es across the country. I just don't, I genuinely don't think the minister mm. is fit for the job. And I don't say that in a political way. I just don't think he's strong enough. Well, there's chaos. The I think they dictate and he just buckles. There's chaos. That's not good enough when people's health is put at risk. It's just not good enough. Chaos in the emergency departments, chaos uh, mm. in the doctor on call over Christmas. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And as, as Grace told us, 
uh, people who should be going to a dentist uh, as they're entitled to with their medical card uh, are being told go to the hospital or go to the doctor and call and add to the numbers that are, are already in a chaotic situation. I, I mean, it just, it makes no sense whatsoever, ever. And the minister, he, sh- he just shouldn't leave it to the HSE to resolve the, these issues. He, you know, he needs to take the bull by the horns. And God, it's times that you get so angry, you know, because you're dealing with people and, you know, seriously ill people, people with with diabetes, with cancer that need regular dental checkups, people in blinding agony with either abscesses or and I can't and have to go through jump through hoops to get the basic of dental care and yet I mean I've literally lost count of many times I've raised it and every single time they come out of the same nonsense for the I'm biting my tongue when I use that word. Um it's just so frustrating that they I just don't think they're fit for purpose. I, re- yeah. I just don't think he's... I genuinely believe he's not strong enough to stand up to the HSE, that he lets them dictate whatever is happening, and he just doesn't take them on at all. He's either afraid to or he's not. But then, where does the, where does the Taoiseach and the Tarnishta hmm. stand in that? Is, They're is, quite do, happy to... They fobbed off the issue as well. Is, is so this, is this a problem to. that's uh, existing everywhere? Is it right across the country? It's right across the country. Yeah. yeah, it's right across the country. There's not a single dentist in Drogheda providing dental care for a medical card patient. And that's been going on 18 months. And I, my office has been inundated with people just like Grace, close to tears. Hmm. And it, no matter how, how often I raise it, it's like they just don't give it down. It's like they're so aloof from what's happening to people. The same could be said of the trolley crisis, of waiting lists, of housing crisis. It's just they're so aloof. I don't know whether they think they can brazen their way through all of this, but to know when it's raised time and time again, and everybody knows if you get a toothache, it's pure agony, and you just think you'll never get seen. And they know all this, and yet they won't, he won't, the minister won't command the HSE to a meeting and the, de- the Dental Association and sit down, let the Dental Association raise the issues that are concerning them, the fact that they can't give preventative treatment, that the, the scheme itself is not fit for purposes, the cutbacks, that the lack of early diagnosis and treatment, the lack of early intervention is causing long-term problems. And he doesn't say to the HSE, you as the body tasked with providing public health services, we, the three of us, need to address this and get it sorted so that thousands, tens of thousands of people, the length and breadth of the country, are not left in limbo or in agony or without basic dental care. Or having to pay for it uh, themselves. And forced to pay for it themselves. When you have to come up with that kind of money, something has to go. Something yeah, has to yeah. give. Uh, because you, everybody knows you don't qualify for a medical card that easily. Yeah. 
It's okay. deplorable. It's absolutely deplorable. Imelda, we leave it there. I have to, uh, we've run out of time, but thanks indeed for your time. Thanks for joining Thank us uh, this morning. That's Imelda Munster, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, Generation Rent is uh, something that a lot of people listening to us will identify with and affording the rent is uh, another day's work, let alone the idea of actually saving up and getting a mortgage and buying your own home. Uh, A pipe dream for many people, unfortunately. Uh, But did you ever think of applying for social housing. Uh, Maybe you think that because you're working or because of how much you're earning, you wouldn't qualify. Uh, Let's hear a little bit more about this, though. Nick Killian is uh, the chairperson of Meath County Council and he's on the line. A very good morning to you, Nick, and thanks for joining us uh, on uh, the programme. They've increased uh, the thresholds uh, for eligibility and you can be earning quite a a lot of money, uh, I think it seems at this stage, uh, in order to qualify for uh, social housing. Well, Thankfully, I mean, it's taken 10 years uh, to bring this increase about, which is uh, far too long. And eventually, uh, the, the, obviously, the minister and the department have realised that they couldn't leave the threshold as it was at 35,000. Uh, I'm talking now from a Meath perspective. Mm. And it's going to go up to 40,000, as from the 1st of January. And uh, in County Loud, that goes from 30 to 35,000. So if you're earning 35,000 in Loud, you could uh, apply for social housing. If you're earning 40,000 in Mead, you could apply for social housing. It doesn't mean you'll get one tomorrow, though, of course. No, it doesn't. And I mean, I think that that's something we have to say very clearly, that once you come onto the housing list, you're going to be on a waiting list. And that, that at this particular point in time could be anything but depending on your family circumstances from five to seven, eight years at this particular point in time, as things stand today. Right. So and that threshold of 40,000 a maid, uh, does that apply to a single person? What, what, what does it mean in terms of a couple? To a single person, uh, to a couple, the same. Now, if you have three children, it goes up to 43,500. Right. So if you have three children. But it's not double that. It's not 80,000 for No, absolutely no. not. No, okay. no. And they're very strict. The rules are very strict. They're implemented very strictly by the local authorities uh, right across the country because they're the guidelines and the rules as dictated by the Department of Housing. Okay. So, but it, it, it is a terrific increase from the perspective of the people that I meet who many of them would be earning maybe, you know, 38, 39, mm thousand euro a year and and couldn't qualify because of the 35,000. Yeah. Have you met yeah. anybody who's held off uh, getting married uh, because they're on the housing waiting list? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, people might, might smile at that. Yeah. People are, people are there's, there's boys and girls that I know well, they're men and women who are living in their own family homes they're they're engaged, hmm. and yet the, the the boy is with his mammy and daddy, and the girl is with her mammy and daddy, or whatever. Okay. Because and again, the circumstances uh, of the income is 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 crucial here. But hmm. there is consequences from for this. This is going to increase the number of people on the housing waiting list. Of course, yeah. And it's also hmm. going to uh, increase people who will be entitled to um, housing assistance payment. Right. And yeah. In, and as you well know, Michael, you've been talking about it, and both you and mm. I have been talking about it for years, um, the unavailability now of rental property. 
So whilst on the one hand it's very good news, on the other hand there's consequences. Because more it. more people will uh, be eligible uh, to uh, at yes, least uh, apply. Uh, tell, t- tell us what the process. Uh, if you apply for social housing, uh, obviously you go to the County Council uh, to do that. Yeah, yeah You get your application. I mean the yeah. most important yeah. thing is, and I say this to people all the time who come to me and they're not aware that they should even be on the housing list. They come to you and say, when can I get a house? Mm. Are you on the housing list? Of course, they say no to you. Fill out the... Uh, contact your local authority. Contact right. me, County Council Housing Section. Get, get them to send you out an application form. You can actually do it online now as well. Mm. But you have... Um, there's quite a lot of... Um, material that you have to supply. Mm. Pay slips and all uh, of that sort of stuff, uh, I'm sure. So, 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 so people from abroad in particular... Uh, who have come to live in Ireland um, have also to prove that they don't own property or haven't owned property in the country from where they came from. Okay. That has also to be sent in and it has to be, uh, you know, mm. translated into English from their own country. And that's something that can delay um, applicants coming onto the list. So, you know, talk to your local councillor. All, mm. all Councillors are great for helping people get yeah. through this bureaucracy. Well, but, but let me just yeah. ask you, you said it could take seven, eight, nine years maybe before you'd get the keys to your own house. Uh, and if you if you applied, if you go through uh, the uh, system today and you fill out the form, send in your pay slips and all of the information that they're looking for, and let's say you're earning 39000 now in January 2023, uh, if you're still waiting, uh, as you'd expect to be, in January 2024, if you get a pay increase in the meantime and you're on 42000 It's taken as when you applied. Okay, right. Yeah, it's taken as when you applied. Now, the circumstances of a couple may change, which would throw them out outside the picture altogether. Mm. But it, it is as you as you have applied. So, if you apply today and you're on thirty nine thousand, let's say, and in eight years' time they come along with uh, an offer of a house for you, and you're earning a hundred thousand, it, it's it's, 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 it's stands. when you apply it. Right. Okay. Okay. What what, what other criteria uh, apply well, to this? The main criteria is that you are without a house and this applies to anybody over the age of 18 years of age so I, I even tell you know uh, parents if somebody's at home and knowing at this point in time that maybe the type of work that they're actually in they could be in um, low pay you know mm. semi-skilled work and um, they probably will never get to the situation of maybe um been in an opportunity to buy their own place is to go on the housing list mm. and apply, even even at the age of 18, 19 and 20. And if you apply as a single person, um, will you be offered a house? No, that's, mm. that's the biggest waiting list at the moment. It's 10 years now for somebody right. um, on the waiting list who's uh, single. And okay. My big concern around that is, apart from the younger people, is the amount of older people that are now single and on the housing list. Okay, and you might end up with a one-bedroom apartment, I take it, or something like well, that? Yeah, and mm. we are developing, to be fair, Meath County Council, it's government policy, all the local authorities, I'm sure loud they're doing the mm. same, is we're increasing our building of one-bedroom apartments or one-bedroom houses. Okay. They tend to be small townhouses. Okay, like and, and, and just take us to uh, the end of the line, if you like. You get the key, you move in, um, you're now earning maybe more than the threshold was, uh, uh, and your partner, uh, now your spouse, moves in with you. 
uh, and your children move in or whatever the case may be. Uh, it's not that you live there uh, free of charge. Uh, the overall income, household income. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a rental scheme where people come in and pay and you're pegged at, at the particular point in relation to the salary that you're actually earning. Right. So that's, uh, that you will be told that, I mean, there's a comprehensive um, trade, well, there's training provided now for people moving into, uh, we have our own people here who uh, meet with the tenants, uh, go through all the rules and regulations that have to be uh, adhered to, and everything is explained to them fully, and the council support mechanism that's there will, will click in to the new tenants okay. uh, before they move into a, a new property. Uh, and that threshold of 40,000 is for County Mead. If you uh, are in Kells or you're in Ashburn, it makes no difference. It matter whether you're in Oldcastle yep. or whether you're in Ashburn, it's 40,000. Okay. I'm delighted that it's been increased. It should have been done a long time ago. I've been advocating for it. Uh, nobody was listening in the department, obviously, because there's cost implications to this. Mm. Uh, um, and that's the way the department look at it. But from our perspective as county councillors, it, it, it will be welcomed right across the board mm. and indeed probably should be even higher. But I'm surprised and, uh, I, well, I'm, I'm, I let the loud, uh, uh, my loud colleagues... Let them give out. They can give out. I see no reason why loud should be treated differently than me from the perspective of the 40,000. Yep. So, uh, okay, I well, I, I, I think there'll be a lot of people interested in it, uh, and uh, uh, either for themselves or for somebody who's a bit younger than them at home and might be advising them to go on the housing waiting list if they're earning 35,000 or less in County Loud or 40,000 or less in County Mead that they can apply now. Either contact your local authority, contact Mead County Council housing section, contact your local councillor who'll have the forms and who'll help you and advise you on what to do and what not to do with the, you know, and, and what has to be filled out. We're there to help at any time and uh, every county councillor does that as part and parcel of his daily work. Very good. So we would say to people, but the one thing we'd say to people as well, don't expect a house the following week. <laughs> no, no, uh, absolutely not. Uh, but if you're 20 years of age, uh, I think uh, you may be glad when you get to the 30 years of age uh, that you did apply when you exactly. were 20. Okay, exactly. Nick, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Very, very interesting stuff indeed. Uh, that's uh, the Coherlock of Mead County Council, Independent Councillor Nick Killian. Michael Reed on LMFM. The deadliest single incident of uh, the Troubles in Northern Ireland occurred almost 25 years ago now on the 15th of August 1998 when a car bomb exploded in Oma, killing 29 people, including a woman who was pregnant with twins and injuring about 220 people. One of uh, the deceased uh, was Aidan Gallagher. His uh, father, Michael, is on the line. Michael is uh, the chairperson and spokesperson for the OMA Self-Help and Support Group. And a very good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You're urging the Northern Ireland Secretary to uh, commission a public inquiry into what happened. Hello, good morning, Michael. Yes, we, um, well, I've, taken the British government to court, a court case that lasted almost nine years, it must have made British legal history, and eventually on the 8th of October uh, 2021, the judge said that there should be an inquiry, um, and where possible that should be 
uh, involved the Irish government as well as the British government. And it took the, the Secretary of State well over a year, you know, to do... He'd done absolutely nothing, so I took him back to court again. And we met with him just before Christmas in Belfast, and we left him in no doubt what was needed. We didn't want a reinvestigation. We needed um, to know what went wrong, because OMA was a preventable atrocity, and there were serious feelings in the management of intelligence in the lead-up to OMA, both in Northern Ireland and in the Republic, and we need that you, the families just need those answers in order to move on. It, it was actually 31 people that died in Oma and over 250 injured, and no lessons have been learned. Um, you know, with the, that same atrocity, God forbid, could happen in any small town in Ireland, yeah. uh, and we we have learned no lessons, and those responsible haven't served one day in jail for the crime that they committed. Okay. Uh, I don't think any of us will forget it, but obviously uh, yourself and uh, the families in Oma live with uh, the atrocity that shocked not just everybody in this country, but uh, across the world. Chris Heaton-Harris has said he'll decide this month as to whether to call a fresh investigation or, or not. But essentially this is asking the British government to investigate the British government or uh, the state security forces and security forces uh, north and south of uh, the borders because of uh, alleged failings in security and what could have been prevented, as you say. Well, what, what I said to uh, the Secretary of State was I could, you know, we could have got it wrong here. And if we have got it wrong, please show us where we've got it wrong. And you can only do that by examining the facts. And I made it clear that we absolutely support the British government and the Irish government, the Garda and the PSNI. Um, But we just feel that there were huge mistakes made. There was a mismanagement of intelligence in the lead up to OMA. And uh, there was obviously people, uh, agents working for one government or both governments at that time that possibly could have made a difference. So it's only by examining the facts and learning the lessons of of what happened that, you know, we can move on as families. Mm. And that intelligence would have been known uh, to uh, security forces, uh, North and South, uh, the British and the Irish security forces, but also US intelligence would have had information. Absolutely. The FBI um, had an agent. It was a joint uh, controlled agent um, controlled by MI5 and the FBI operating. He was operating mainly in the Republic, but he was passing back good quality intelligence. And um, I have no doubt that that intelligence would have been shared with MI5, crime and security, and MI5 did work closely together and and it's only right they should work closely together because these are the people that protect us. But there, for whatever reason, whether it was political, uh, whether it was mismanagement, but we need to know the answers. There's no, there's no doubt anybody that's even scratched the surface in OMA on the OMA subject would know that, um, that on that Saturday morning, the phone came live in Dundalk. It ended in 585. And GCHQ in uh, Cheltenham in England was monitoring that call. 
and they never passed that information on to the police. And that was a call and, between the bombers. Know, they, were, they were listening to the bombers speaking. Yes, of course. Mm. Uh, but not only listening to them, but they could track the signal as, as the car moved up the country. Um, and it's never really been explained why they, did, why they didn't uh, allow people to intercept the, 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 the bomb team on that Saturday morning or afternoon. So there's, that's only one small point, um, and I think there's a huge amount of information out there. And you know, we we need to examine it. We need people in the dock where, where we can say to them, "What decision did you make? Who did you speak to about that decision? And what was the outcome?" That's the type, and that's not taking it away for one minute from those people who planned, prepared, and delivered that bomb. But we expect better of our intelligence services. Okay. and our security services both north and south. Yeah, and we should and that applies to all of us and that's why inquiries like this are so important. Michael we have to leave it there. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to come back uh, and talk uh, about the inquiry when it's announced but thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Gallagher chairperson and spokesperson for the OMA self-help and support group. That's our programme for today. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on, LF, on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.